Let me just begin by restating the kind of twofold goal or purpose for this, uh, this class, which is probably going to take uh, well over a year to go through, maybe a couple of years, we'll see. Um, but, but the first goal is to just familiarize you guys with some of the basic symbols of the Bible, chiefly the tabernacle, the temple, and everything that's inside of them. And then uh, it would be silly to stop there if you didn't uh, do what the New Testament says and move beyond those things or through those things to the actual reality that all of those symbols point to and are telling you about. Uh, so that's, that's the goal of this class. Um, in lesson one, we looked at the creation week of Genesis 1. We said that the creation week is the kind of fundamental foundational pattern and archetype for everything that comes after. And we said that the telos or the purpose of the creation week is God building a home so that we can live together with him. This is signified by the language of God uh, resting on the Sabbath day and inviting man to enter into that rest. So rest itself is a symbol, it is a sign, and it signifies communion, fellowship, and friendship between creator and creature. And rest is really what all of God's works of creation and redemption are pointed towards. Uh, That's what Paul elaborates on in Hebrews chapter 4. So you have in Genesis 1, even before there's a fall, you have this kind of narrative tension that's pointing you towards there's going to be some things that happen, some divisions, some separations, some reunions, but it's going to culminate with this moment of rest on the seventh day. Uh, The two uh, key takeaways I had for you from lesson one were that the tabernacle and temple are physical models of spiritual realities. Uh, They are what the New Testament calls types, shadows, figures, and the like of something more real and more true. And then the second takeaway is that the tabernacle and temple are the places where God makes his special presence to dwell. Um, I didn't get to read you all of the different uh, passages that state this. I'll give you a couple of them now. Uh, it says in Deuteronomy 16, 11 of the tabernacle that it is the, quote, uh, the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name. So it's the place where God places his name. Think, what does that mean? Uh, likewise, 1 Kings 8, 2, it says of the temple, my name shall be there. My name shall be there. And you see the same thing at the very end of Ezekiel. Uh, So Ezekiel 40 to 48, there's this description of this uh, uh, kind of uh, spiritual temple, we could say. And the very end of Ezekiel is the name of that city is the Lord is there. Okay, So that's what um, scripture tells us about God's special presence in these special places. Now, let's move into the content of lesson two. If the whole point of these sacred structures is to teach us something about God's presence, the next question that we should be asking if we are good theologians is, if God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, just like the catechism says, then in what sense is God said to be in the tabernacle or in the holy place or even inside of you? What does it even mean for God to dwell with us or in us? And uh, by way of an aside, in Hebrew, there's this very common uh, word that's, uh, we just call it the bet, preposition, uh, be, 
and it can mean with or in. It's an interchangeable word. So with, in, uh, there's a diversity in those two concepts, but also they can be signified by the same uh, word in Hebrew, bet. Uh, so what does it mean for God to dwell with us or in us? And how do we do justice to all that Holy Scripture makes us to say about God and that he is both everywhere, he's omnipresent, and yet he's also said in some, to be in some places like the tabernacle or the temple in some other way. Or as the New Testament says over and over again, we are in Christ and Christ is in us. Have you ever tried to think through like, what does that actually mean? What does that actually mean? I think we all generally know it doesn't mean that Jesus' body is like inside our body, right? That would be a category mistake, but what does it mean? So this is what we're going to start to explore, and I'm not going to give you all the answers tonight. I'm going to just set up some of these tensions for you. So these are the questions we're going to meditate upon and try to answer over the next few lessons. Uh, But we begin this evening with a crash course in how to do theology. And most people have no idea how to do theology, so I'm going to kind of give you the, um, kind of take you behind the scenes of what good theologians should be doing when they try to attain to truth. So, um, we could summarize the work of theology in this famous maxim, faith-seeking understanding. Has anyone heard that phrase, faith-seeking understanding? Has anyone? Okay. This is a, this is a famous uh, quotation uh, attributed, I think, uh, perhaps first to Anselm. He was a medieval theologian. And let me explain what faith-seeking understanding means, because it's a really important concept. Faith-seeking understanding means that by faith, we simply believe what God says because God says it. Okay? It's that simple. Uh, God is supremely trustworthy. He's our ultimate authority, and therefore he gives us maximum certitude. And then, because God said it, Our will is determined to hold tightly to the truth, to the thing that he tells us is true. So we believe and confess, and therefore we become Christians, right? This is, you become a Christian by faith in God. And then the the work of theology is this kind of next step. From that position of faith, already knowing what is true because God says so, we start to ask questions and exercise our reason in the light of faith. And we do the hard intellectual work of trying to understand the truths that we already believe. Um, That is ultimately what theology is. It's just faith seeking to understand what it already believes and confesses. I'll give you uh, an example of this. Um, In order to be a Christian, you have to believe that God is Trinity. Why? Because the Bible just says that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. However, uh, very few people have any idea what God is Trinity means or in what way he is three, in what way he is one. And uh, the vast majority of Christians who are going to die and go to heaven would totally fail a Trinity theology test, right? They would all be found out to be, uh, you know, technically heretics in terms of their answers to the questions. But uh, so... uh, We all believe what scripture says, but then now we have to try to understand and make sure that we don't have some of those logical contradictions. And this is something that, you know, your average Christian shouldn't really ever do because it takes enormous amounts of hard work 
and it's also taken thousands of years, uh, to be able to articulate these things in a way that does justice to what Scripture teaches. Uh, Scripture is the most difficult book to interpret and understand. The message of salvation is very easy, and like even a child could get the message of salvation from the Bible, but to actually understand like what's going on in Chronicles or what's going on in most of the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms, we sing them all the time, but they are really, really difficult texts. They were meant to be read, as I said earlier, like thousands of times. So until you've gone through the Bible and know the Bible like you know the back of your hand, uh, you're not ready to do theology yet. And this is why uh, God has given a special gift to theologians, to uh, what we call the doctors of the church or great theologians in, in the Christian church who have the gift to do some of this work for us. So they kind of climb up the mountain. They, they're Moses going up on the mountaintop into the cloud of unknowing. And then they can come back down and give to us common people the things that they have seen up there. And in a certain sense, that's what divine revelation is, the Bible is. And then theology is us trying to more and more understand what is going on there. So by faith, we believe God is Trinity. And then we seek to understand uh, exactly what that is, what that means. So in theology, we're trying to get to the formal explanation or causes for the truths that we already hold and confess. So bringing that down to us, for us who are studying God's presence in the tabernacle and temple, we take scripture as our point of departure. So that's where we're going to start with, we just believe what scripture says on faith. And then we're going to try to harmonize and distill everything that the Bible says about God and his presence and bring it to bear on one question before us. So here's the question we're going to try to uh, talk through tonight. In what sense or senses can we say that God is present? In what sense or senses can we say that God is present? So think about that question for a moment. And if anyone wants to take a stab at trying to, to give us maybe just one sense in which we can say God is present. Does anyone, anyone feel bold and want to get us started? Josh. Okay, so just for the recording, Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is said to be with us. So, there's so, so we need to do justice to that. Bible says it. We need to figure out how to account for that. Good. So that, that's one. Other, other kinds of ways in which God is present. Tom? He's present everywhere. So to say God is present is kind of a topology, because of course he's there. Mm-hmm. Now that is where we're. That is where we're going. That's that's. This is exactly the tension I want you to start to feel. Is God is present everywhere? God is present in the Holy Spirit in us. Okay. Any any others that you can think of? We already have that He's present somehow in the tabernacle or the temple. There's some special way He's present there. Any other ideas? Yeah, so that would be kind of something like Josh uh, mentioned. So yeah, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so it's kind of like you're, you're getting the feels. You turn on a worship song in the car and you get chills down your spine. 
I know that's you, Wink. I know that's you. He loves everyone. <laughs> He's got Bethel and Hillsong in the, in the CD changer. So, okay, so I, I want you to think about this, and we're going to explore this some more. Um, actually, if you want to prepare for two weeks from now, we're going to talk about just the many ways that creatures can be said to be in or with things. So for those of you who have a husband or a wife, like think about some of the ways that you can be present or not present to your spouse. You know, sometimes you can be physically present and mentally not present at all, right? So let, let's think about this some more. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with giving you the answer, and then we're going to kind of work back um, in future lessons to try to understand uh, the data I'm going to give you right now. So here's, the, here's what the theologians have climbed up Mount Sinai and brought back down to us. If you were to read your whole Bible with this question in mind, in what, in what sense or senses can we say that God is present, you would come to the conclusion that there are basically three senses in which God is said to be present. And good job, you guys got two of them. So uh, the one that Tom mentioned, where God is present everywhere, uh, guess what we call this in theology? We call this God's common presence. <laughs> okay, so very sophisticated. This is God's common presence. And it is, uh, most people, however, have very wrong understandings of common presence. But it, it is to say that God is present in every reality in that he makes it to be. This is a deeply metaphysical kind of presence that takes a lot of work to grasp because God doesn't have a body. God is not temporal. He's a spirit. So you need to kind of negate certain things about the way in which like you and I would be present in a space. And uh, has anyone read Augustine's Confessions? Okay. So stop whatever else you're reading if you haven't read it. You know, it's one of the most important books in the Christian tradition. And it's really, so the whole book is St. Augustine praying to God. So it's a, it's a prayer. And he starts like when he's a baby. He's confessing to God about when he was a little baby. And he's crying. And he's asking God questions. But Augustine is wrestling with this question of like, in what way was God present even before I became a Christian? So he's talking about when he, you know, stole some pears or when he went, um, uh, when he committed fornication or he was sleeping with this girl who is not his wife. And he, he was just um, controlled by his lust. And yet he knows that God was present orchestrating his life and especially talks about his mother's prayers, like his mother just prayed and prayed and prayed for him. And eventually in this really amazing way, God converts St. Augustine, and he becomes, you know, probably the second or third greatest theologian there ever was. So, but, but the whole book is kind of a meditation on in what way God is present. He has this line that God is more inside than my insides. God is more present to me than I am present to myself. And so he's doing this hard work, and then later theologians, they take Augustine's insights and they build on it. They're looking at scripture. They're thinking about how can we talk about the way that God is present to us. And we, and we come to this conclusion. Uh, this would be in the medieval era when it really gets clarified that God is present everywhere, not as a body in a space, not as water in a vase, but as containing all things in that he makes them to be. He is the efficient cause of all that is. 
So this is where uh, in the Psalms, you think of Psalm 139, it's one of my favorite Psalms, where David is saying, where can I go from your spirit? I climb to heaven, you're there. I go down to hell, you're there. Wherever I go, you're there. Well, David is playing with this idea that God is both everywhere and that he's also specially present to him. Uh, Perhaps some of us have gone through seasons of life where we feel like God is far from us. And then other times where we feel like God is close to us. Like, what is that? What is that experience? What's like actually happening in reality that makes us to feel that way? These are deep questions that Christians have wrestled with. So the first way in which God is present, well, most people just think of omnipresence, he's everywhere, is that God is present in every reality as causing it to be, as giving it existence. That, that is, God is the efficient cause of all that is. That's called common presence. The second kind of presence is what we call special presence. And this is what uh, Josh and Wink alluded us to. It's God in you by grace. And then there's different ways in which this is talked about. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But what this is, is God in you by knowledge and love. Knowledge and love by the grace of knowing him and loving him. And um, that'll be a whole lesson in itself, understanding that. So common presence, he's everywhere as the efficient cause. Special presence, he's inside of you by grace. And then there's a third one that's going to be perhaps so obvious that you guys didn't say it, it's that God is present in Christ as the God-man. We call this, he's present hypostatically (laughs) in the person of Christ. Christ is fully God, fully man. And that is the apex, that's the climax of this revelation of God's presence. At Christmas time, we talk about Emmanuel, God with us. Well, he can't be God with us unless he comes in, in Christ. So, Those are the three, so you could take essentially every single verse that you come across in the Bible that talks about God being with or in or something, and you could put it into one of those three kind of buckets or under one of those headings. Now, there are some kind of little subdivisions within these, but generally those are your three um, categories that you can use to interpret everything in Scripture. And it, it took a long time for us to get to those three distilled, reduced understandings of God's presence. Okay. Uh, So I have proof texts for all of these, but I'm going to skip them just for sake of time. By the way, these will all be in my my notes on the internet later on for you to see. So I have texts that show um, God's common presence, his special presence, his presence in Christ. I want to close with a kind of trick question for you. I'm telling you it's a trick question up front. So if those are the three categories or the, the three ways in which uh, God is said to be present, under which heading, in which bucket, do we place God's presence in the tabernacle or the temple? So let's think about that. God says his name is in the tabernacle. You know, inside of the holy place, there's a throne, two cherubim, but there's nothing there, but that's where God is, because you can't see God, but that's where he sits. So in what way is God there? (laughs) Which of those three categories do we put that kind of presence in? Anyone want to take a stab at it? It's all all three. Okay, so uh, Wink says common presence. Uh, Andrew says all three. Any other uh, guesses? 
Uh, Leanna's going to say special, special. We can just take a vote. and Okay. Uh, a- Andrew, why don't you explain in what way it's all three? Well, for the tabernacle to even exist, for something to have being and to have substance, it has to have God's common presence. Mm-hmm. And then secondarily, it's special presence where it is sort of that more localized thing. And then thirdly, it is pointing to Christ. So in the in the in his priestliness. So yeah. Okay, uh, that's pretty much the right answer. Um, there would be a few things we'd want to adjust, but so of course we have to include common presence because yeah, it's a thing. God made it. It's it's there. So common presence is covered. But uh, if you were to like jump back to the time before the New Testament, so imagine all you have is say the Old Testament. You're a, you're a Jew. You're a Hebrew, and there's a tabernacle. Um, what is it? In what way is God present there? Well, He's present there. We learn in the New Testament as a sign of His special presence to come. So at the time, uh, well. And what, God isn't there like he's inside of you. And of course he's not there like he's inside of Christ, because Christ has not come yet. So what the tabernacle and the temple are, are signs of God's future, during that time, future special presence and presence in Christ. And once you get that, it really unlocks everything about what is inside of those structures. The way that they are laid out. If you were to look at a bird's eye view of Solomon's temple and you look at the language, it's a little obscured in English, but it speaks of the temple having like shoulders. It's a humaniform structure and it's basically a human being. <laughs> if, you, if you do a bird's eye view of the temple, it, it's like you can see here's the shoulders and then it comes in closer, and here's the holy place, and the most holy place, and, and this, you know, uh, right here is where God's throne is. So you think about the Hebrews, the Jews, who would see these structures, they couldn't go in them. Only the high priest once a year could go inside of the most holy place, and you had to be a priest to go in just the holy place. So this was, it was a total mystery to them what was inside of there, unless when they go to offer their sacrifice, they're like asking the priest, hey, what's it look like in there? By the way, uh, we'll learn later that the tabernacle and temple are portable mountains. They're just, mount, they're, they are Mount Sinai, which is where God gives them the instructions, but then it's just laid out horizontally. So it's a vertical structure that's laid out horizontally, and when you go into the most holy place, there is no light there. It's pitch black. This is telling us something about whether you can see God or how you come to know God. And the church has meditated on these things that God wrote down for us. Right? He, he described a lot of furniture in the Bible for some reason. Because <laughs> he wanted us to think about what cubits are and uh, think about the structures and the paces and the dimensions to teach us something about how we come to know Christ and how Christ comes to dwell in us and really how we become saved. All right, I'll pause there. Uh, Any questions?
or reflections? I've got one. So one of the things that, as we're talking about signs and symbols pointing us to things, how do we, how do we avoid the Gnostic heresy? Where we're basically saying there is a there's a higher reality that's beyond, which we acknowledge that there is, but yet they diminish the material space. Yeah. So how do we how do we how do we avoid how do we avoid that? Yeah, I think uh, yeah this is a perennial temptation for the church to um, take things like earth and dirt. Things that are not in themselves sinful, but are signs of sinfulness. And then the church has tended to, even like with sex, you can see they have kind of a weird view of sex, a lot of the church, because they think of it as something that is like inherently kind of sinful or carnal or lower. It's part of your base passions. I think there's a few ways that you can address that. One is common presence. And what it says in Scripture that everything that God made is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with prayer and thanksgiving. So if God is good, all that proceeds from God must be good, which is what Scripture tells us. And it's also why we're forced to say that evil or sin is a privation. It is non-being. It's not a thing. It's not a substance. Um, So there are things that scripture forces us to say about reality and one of them is that everything that God created is good and that sin the corruption is something that is actually not being God does not give existence to not being All right that, that would be a contradiction the um, the thing that the Gnostics have right and and it just is is a Christian idea is that uh, we walk by faith and not by sight. So there's something about your senses that are good. That's the only way you actually can get knowledge is it comes in through your five senses. But remember what Jesus says to Thomas after the resurrection? So, so Thomas, he, he doubts and he puts his hands and is like, I need to, I need to actually feel and see. But he eventually... He, that many people saw and touched Jesus, but that was not salvific for them. What was salvific for Thomas was something that was immaterial, namely the act of faith that happens in your intellect and will, which is a, like that's an immaterial thing. So um, you want to say that salvation is not something that happens to you by a physical act, It's an immaterial spiritual act is what we'd say. That's what faith is. But then you also have the resurrection of the body and the fact that Christ is a real, you know, he's in a physical fleshly body, a spiritual spiritual body after the resurrection, which means matter must be good. He didn't come back as a phantasm or come back as a ghost. Um, So I think God's common presence and the resurrection of the dead which you just have to confess as a Christian, should push against some of the Gnostic tendencies. And then people are going to have be Gnostic in different ways, and you have to just address that as they come. Does that answer? 
Yeah, I think so. So then, what should we, when we're, when we're thinking about these symbols, right, uh, should we, as we start to learn about the deeper meaning behind them, have a greater appreciation for the symbol itself or the thing that it's actually pointing to or both? Yeah, b both. When I know that uh, uh, a lamp signifies Christ as the light of the world, and I realized the reason why God created lamps was so that he could eventually say in John, I am the light of the world. Suddenly a lamp is really cool. And the same could be done for many other things that are quite common to us. But then Jesus says things like, uh, I'm the bread of life. And like we eat bread every day, but, you know, basically. So that we, I think that's part of it is that uh, when... Grace comes, it does not obliterate nature, it elevates nature. This is like one of the most foundational principles in Christian theology is that grace doesn't destroy nature, it elevates our nature. So Christ, you know, be, uh, having the fullness of the Godhead bodily, it didn't obliterate human nature, it actually elevated our nature to what God wanted it to be. And that's what's going to happen to the entire creation in a way that we, you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what God has prepared for those who, who love him.